Well, every week when we gather, we want to take time as a congregation to go before the Lord in prayer. Uh, but before we do that, what I like to also do is take time uh, to allow you to confess your sins uh, and your need for God's mercy and grace before him privately. And so I'll give you about, you know, 30 seconds or whatever. I don't know. Not really counting. Uh, if you would, just bow your heads. Uh, and take a moment of your time uh, to confess your need for God's grace and mercy this morning. Lord God Almighty, we want to honor and praise you this morning. Lord, you are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the Lord of all. You have blessed us with every good thing that we experience. But most of all, you bless us with a relationship with yourself. There is no greater blessing, God, than to know you and to be known by you. And for this and so many other things, we thank you. Father, we ask that the worship we offer here today, this morning, might be pleasing in your sight. Forgive us of all our sins. Forgive us for doing what we should not have done. And also forgive us for not doing what we know we should have done. Forgive us of the sins we are aware. And forgive us of the sins that we are unaware. Lord, were it not for your mercy, none of us could stand before you. But by your marvelous grace, you have redeemed us and made us a people that can serve you joyfully. Lord, we lift up the needs of those around us. We pray uh, that we would continue to see estimates for the coronavirus, especially the deaths, that they would be over-exaggerated. Not because we want to prove ourselves right, but because, God, we want to see people live. Lord, give knowledge and strength to the medical professionals who labor right now. Help all who have been affected by this virus, whether it is physically, emotionally, or financially. God, let there be healing. And God, we lift up our nation to you in particular. We are so divided that sometimes it seems that there is nothing that anyone can agree on. I pray that that division would not be present in this church, in any church. Lord, I pray that your people would be united in their commitment to stand firm on your word and not to waver. Help us to love what you love and help us to hate what you hate. Let us be a people who call evil what it is and lift up what is good for all to see. Lord, change us from the inside out, that we would be a people who are united by our confession in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to embrace one another and not be separated by things, whether it be skin tone or income inequality or whatever divides us as a nation or political affiliation. All these things, Lord God, let us be united under the banner of the gospel. Let our love for one another be something that the world looks around and sees and points out and says there's something different in what those people do. God, make us a light to the world. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would move through what we do here this morning. Through the singing of songs, through the offering of prayers, 
and through the preaching of your word, as we do this, God, change hearts. You alone have the power to change people as we come to a knowledge of you. And as Christ taught us to pray, Lord God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, Reconciled. If you guys have a Bible, feel free to open it up. If we not, we have some over there you can uh, grab. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 13 this week. All right. So, like I said, bad move. Accidentally picked twice as long as Rob told me. Twice as long a passage to teach in a sermon that probably should be half the time with the meeting. So, I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you a little quick. So make sure your ears are ready, ready to listen. We all ready to go? Beautiful. Okay, let's do this. So if you were with us last week, we looked at failure. This week, I want to look at the other side of the coin and look at success. See, let me start by throwing out a bit of a hot take for you. Often, I believe success is more damaging to our faith than our failures. See, we all know to God when the, know to God, go to God when the chips are down. Just ask yourself this question. When am I more likely to pray? Is it when everything is down and I feel like I've hit rock bottom? Or is it when you feel like everything's great and you're just killing it at life? When are you more likely to uh, to go to the Lord in prayer? Um, I jokingly said last service, um, I imagine more prayers are offered after a night of heavy drinking than before them, Okay. We have, an, we have innately in our idea that when stuff goes wrong, we're supposed to go to God and ask for things in our desperation. But what do we do when God gives us success as well? So if you've been with us for the past two weeks, you know that all this summer we're looking at the story of Abraham. Abraham is like, if you look at the Old Testament figures, he's on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament people. There's like Abe, there's King David, there's Moses, and like one other one we could debate over. But those are like the top three. Anyways, when Abram appears in the Bible story, in the story of Genesis, it helps answer a question. It helps answer, where will the Savior of the world come from? And we know by God's promise to Abram that he, that the, that the Savior of the world will come from Abram's descendants, or Abraham as, he'll be, uh, as he will become, and as which I'll go back and forth without... Uh, thinking about it. So, it answers the question, from what family, from what bloodline will the Savior come? Um, and then when we last saw, we last saw last week with Abram, he was kind of at a, he went from a high point to a real low point. So, God called him out. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will give you, uh, I will do all these things. Just go. And during a famine, Abram lands up in the land of Egypt. He's afraid for his own life, and he actually sells out his wife. And he says, just tell him you're my sister. And he gives her away to Pharaoh. This story, what's interesting, as we mentioned, is that God keeps his promise to protect Abram, even when Abram himself is unfaithful. And there's a bit of irony as we last ended the story. Uh, God called Abram and he said, go to a land I will show you. God leaves Egypt on bad terms and the Pharaoh says, go. Take your wife and go. And this is where we pick up this week. In Genesis chapter 13. So we're going to kind of walk through some different passages this week. Uh, so if you can, just follow along with me. All right, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13. It says, Abram went from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. 
Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So this is sort of Abram's get back to his roots moment, okay? If this was a Rocky movie, this is when Rocky goes back to his old Philadelphia gym and starts training, okay? This is what's happened. He's coming off of a massive failure, and instead he travels back to the place where it started, where God said, this is the land I'm going to give you, and where he had already built an altar. Now, by doing this, we read here in this story that Abram called upon the name of the Lord there. Now, that word is really loaded with meaning, by the way. It doesn't just mean we read that and we go, oh, Abram prayed. And yeah, that's part of it, but there's more to that language as well. You see, what the calling upon the name of the Lord means, especially in Genesis, is it signifies a big change. So, for example, uh, we read earlier on that after Cain killed Abel, uh, there's a line of descendants that follow in the pattern of Cain. And then it says, eventually, there was another child born, and then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It means the story's about to change. Uh, same thing, the last time Abram called upon the name of the Lord, he was sitting here before, building an altar, resting on the promises of God. Now, what's the significance about this? What does this tell us? Well, what it tells us is that Abraham is reaffirming his faith in God's promises. It's essentially a recommitment. He's come through, a, he, he remembers the promise of God. He's gone through, a fa- he's failed. And now he's back where he started and he's changing his perspective. He remembers what God has called him to. He remembers the promises of God. And specifically, uh, calling upon the name of the Lord here has to do with calling upon the authority bestowed on that name. It's not like a magical abracadabra word. Uh, think about in cop shows when people when they'll say stop in the name of the law. Uh, basically, no one, no cop has ever said stop in the name of the law, but they only do that on TV and, mo- and movies and such. But um, the significance of that, what they mean is stop on the authority that the law carries, and that's the same thing when the Bible tells you to pray to call upon the name of the Lord. You are relying in and trusting upon the authority that that name carries with it. Okay. So, calling on the Lord also implies something. It implies two emotions. Desperation and also submission. You see, it's a way of saying, God, I desperately need you. But also a way of saying, God, I will obey you. You see, you can't submit to the authority of something. You are upset. You cannot ask something of an authority if you are not willing to submit to that authority. And the same thing is true of God. We can't go and call upon the name of the Lord if we are not also in that process submitting to the name of God. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now those two ideas go together, guys. Basically, if his will doesn't happen, his kingdom won't come. So Abram does here, he reaffir- what he's doing is reaffirming his commitment to the Lord after this massive failure. Now he's ready to get back to it. Then we're also told a little about, a bit about uh, one of the other members in Abram's family, Lot. Who's Lot? Lot is his nephew, 
And specifically, he was his brother's kid. His brothers passed away. And most scholars believe that after his brother passed away, Abram kind of took Lot under his wing. As a matter of fact, what we read in this story as well is that uh, we already know Abram and Sarai are older and they don't have any kids. But God said, I'm going to bless one of your descendants. So the natural thought, if this is your first time hearing Genesis, would be, oh, it must be his nephew. It must be Lot who's going to be the promised one. That must be the, who the promise is going to come through. And so we read in this story that Abram and Lot uh, are traveling together and they both become pretty wealthy. So much that they can't live in the same land together. And we read this in verse 8 and 9. Abram says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. Uh, if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So, first off, clearly Abram cares about Lot because he lets him get first pick, right? He says, you pick. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. I'm okay with it either way. That's a pretty significant thing. He could have said, I'm going here, you're going this way, but he didn't. But then there's something else here. You see, rather than thinking he has to manipulate the situation like he did in Egypt. So when Abram was in Egypt, he had to lie. He, had, he thought he had to manipulate to get his way and to survive. Now we find Abram doing the exact opposite. Here, he knows the promise of God. He knows God promised to give him this land. And, his, and instead he says, look, you take your pick. You go this way, I'll go that way. In other words, God's going to bless me whether I go left or right here. It doesn't matter. It's not, about, it's not about that. He doesn't have to control the situation. He trusts in God's promise and then proceeds. And so they split. And as the story goes along, Abram settles in the land of Canaan and Lot settles in the land of Sodom. Afterwards, we're actually, the, the author gives a little note on there about Sodom, lest we think, oh, they're really awesome people. Good for him. He found a good place in Sodom. We're told in verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, this is going to play out as the story progresses. Uh, we're going to see a little bit of that today in the way the king of Sodom reacts. But also, that term, they were wicked, that language in the Hebrew, the original language, actually is the same language that was used to describe the generation before God sent the flood in Noah's time. It's a way of not only showing that they were wicked, but it's also a hint that there is some type of destruction that's about to befall them. It's sort of a hint at things to come because we see the common language being used. So, understand, guys, this, uh, the original reader uh, would have, as we said, he would have, suspect, he would have probably suspected, this is your first time reading uh, Genesis and you were a Hebrew person, you would probably suspect that Lot would have been the person through all the promise was come to. So that we read in verse 14 that the, right after Abram and Lot split, God speaks to Abram again. It says, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look upon the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. 
and there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay. This detail of God's promise to Abram here is actually more, it's sort of like the extended edition. It's an expanded version of what he had already told him the last time he was here. There's more details that come along the way. And specifically, what we find out from here is that now it, that it will not be Lot who's that promised heir. It's not Lot who the descendant, the savior of the world will come from. It will be a direct descendant of Abram. It will be one of Abe's children. Now, also we see, like I said, this is an expanded version of this story. You see what's happening here? Abram's stepping out in faith. And God's plans are being more clearly revealed to him, more fully revealed to him as he goes along. Keep in mind, this is true for us too. See, God doesn't necessarily give you all the details up front. Look, guys, I wish God gave me like a playbook that like just told me what to do at every time, whether to go left or right. I'm sure people who are single like date this person, don't date this person. It would be super easy if you had that kind of thing, right? Um... But this is the but God doesn't do it like that. This is how it tends to work when God when God reveals things to you. He gives you a little piece and he sees if you're faithful with the information you gave him. And then it becomes more clearly understood. This is how this all works out. So rather what he promises he promises first and foremost isn't specifically that he's going to give Abraham all the details they're still yet to come, but rather he promises God promises first and foremost that he, will, that he will be with Abram as he steps out in faith. So, our story continues, and then a fight breaks out. Uh, basically, as we said, Lot inhabits the land of Sodom. And what happens is that there's nine kings we read about that actually go to battle. Uh, and one of those is the land of Sodom, the king of Sodom. And in the midst of that battle, the side that the king of Sodom and the other kings who are with him uh, are on lose. Uh, and in the process, Lot is actually kidnapped and all his stuff with him. He's caught in the crossfire of this battle and he's taken prisoner in the, it, along the way. And then Abram catches word of this. And in chapter 14, verse 13, we read this. One, then one who had came, escaped, came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Okay, keep in mind, this is Abram who last chapter tried to save his own skin because he was afraid of the Pharaoh and he lied. Now, this is Abram who finds out his cousin is kidnapped and his response is, let's get a group of guys together and let's go after them. Four kingdoms together. He, and so Abram comes alongside and he joins with the people, uh, some, of the other nation, uh, some of the other kingdoms that had fought and already lost except Sodom. Um, and specifically, they go, he says, let's go get these guys. Uh, and lo and behold, they actually do. They defeat them. And so, these, this tells us something. One, 
The fact that they had already lost this battle right beforehand tells us that the, defi- the, the decisive uh, point in the vi- the reason they were successful, the reason the difference was because Abram went with them. Or rather, let me say it this way, because the God of Abram went with them and was involved in this fight. Now, at this point, uh, this has been a pretty straightforward story. But then there's this weird little thing that happens along. There's this weird little character that comes along. Um, verse 17, it says, After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, there is not time enough. There could be an entire Sunday devoted to the identity and the character and all that of Melchizedek. What I want you to understand is how Melchizedek appears in this story. Melchizedek is a man from nowhere. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know what happens to him afterwards. He only appears in reference in two other passages, uh, two other books of the Bible, Psalms and Hebrews. When we get to Hebrews, I'll unpack Melchizedek a whole lot more. But what I want you to understand is why did the author include this weird story of Melchizedek here? Well, what do we learn about him? We learn that he is a priest and a king of God Almighty. Nothing here suggests... that's what, that's, how, that's what we know about him from the text. Uh, Melchizedek is a priest and a king of God Almighty. Now, priests were basically the go-to uh, people between God and men in this time. Uh, and what we find here is later on what this Bible is going to do, it's going to liken uh, Melchizedek to Jesus. We'd say Melchizedek is a type uh, that Christ uh, was. Uh, it's not saying that he's necessarily has to was an appearance of Jesus, but specifically that what Melchizedek represented in this story, in some sense, finds its fulfillment in Christ. Specifically, that Jesus is both is both king and priest. Uh, specifically, here, um, Jesus is told we are told is a is a priest forever. He's the final high priest. He's the great high priest. Instead of going into the temple and offering up sacrifices the way they would in Israel, Jesus goes in and offers up himself, thus granting forever access to God by, from his, for his people. And now specifically, what I want you to think about here is what we learn about Melchizedek here. He lives in Salem, which most uh, scholars say was, would have been occupied, uh, would have been the land of Jerusalem in that time, so it was part of the land that Uh, God had promised to Abram. We know he worships God. We know he's a king. So he's got people. He's got subjects. My question for you guys this week is this. Why on earth would God take Abram? Like, there's already a king who worships him in the land. Why on earth would God go with this guy, Abram, who we've already said he worshiped pagan gods He had some weird marriage to his sister thing. It's complicated. He's all these things. He's cowardly at times. Basically, Melchizedek comes on the scene and he's everything Abram isn't. And that is specifically intended by the author. Why? 
Because God wants to remind him why he chose Abram, why he chose Israel. Specifically this. Because it is not about their prestige. It's about God's glory. See, God chose to show his glory by taking some pagan sinner out of Ur and turning him and his descendants into his glorious people. And that is something we should all rejoice in. Because it's not just their story, it's our story as well. You see, the Bible teaches that the true descendants of Abraham, the true, descend, the true Israel, are the people of God and those who trust in him, in his ability to save them, and seek that his name would be glorified and not their own. You see, God chose Abram rather than Melchizedek because he wants to show his great grace and mercy in choosing Abram. Now, the story ends with one of my favorite scenes in any movie, any story. It's someone being put in their place. So, chapter 14, verse 21, we, say, we read, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, where was Sodom in all this? They were hiding behind the bushes. They didn't walk out to battle. Abram was the one who went and took the victory for them. So by all means, what is Sodom's should be Abram's now. He has a right to all of it. And they, the king of Sodom comes out of nowhere and he goes, Hey, why don't you take half and I'll take half. We'll just split it and we'll be cool, right? It's cowardly. Now, then we read verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Okay, as I said, this, the king of Sodom has no right to claim any of this. Abram has a right to all that is his, and Abram gives it all back to him. Specifically, what Abram's doing here is showing him something. He says, in essence, what he's saying, take what is yours. No one will say that I became rich by plundering your nation. No one will say that it was on the basis of Sodom that I became blessed and rich. God has promised to do it, and I want everyone to know that I trust him and that he will do exactly what he said he will do. This is a very different Abram than the person we saw last week, guys. This is not the cowering uh, person. This is not the, the scared little kid that we saw last week in Egypt. Instead, this is a Pharaoh who not only charges against kings and kingdoms, but he stands face to face to kings and tells them this is what's going to happen. He's gone from cowardly to brave. My question is how? Simple. He's begun to trust what God has said and live his life based on that. See, that's what God wants to teach his people. That's what God wants to teach you this morning. Real bravery grows from the confidence that is built on faith in the word of God. And this brings us to our big idea for this week. So uh, if you're with us for the first time, I often give what I call the big idea. It's a real simple way of saying if you take nothing else, if you remember nothing else from this week, let it be this. The right response in our victories is to give all glory to God. See, this is what you were made for. You were made in the image of God Almighty, 
called out of sin by the grace of him, that you might make known to the world what a glorious God we serve. And this brings us back to this issue we started with, this issue of success. Do you see, basically, do you see success as an opportunity to point people to God or an opportunity to advance your own name? It's not wrong to want success and victory in life. The truth is, guys, we'll experience both the highs and lows. We'll experience both the best and the worst of times if you're alive long enough. However, if we only look to God during the bad times, why on earth would we expect God to give us any good times? Like, if the only reason you're going to come to God when you've hit rock bottom, the best thing God could do is keep you at rock bottom. Guys, I don't want that. I don't think you want that. I don't want that for you. But if we're going to be able to understand and appreciate when God blesses us and God gives us victory and success, what you have to understand is why he's giving you that success. It's not wrong to want it, but understand that success and victory in your life is a test from God. It reveals what you really believe, not just what you say you believe. So do you really believe that God is the source of every good and perfect gift? Or do you think he's just there for emergencies? Like break glass in case of emergency. Ask God in case of emergency. See, the way you handle success will tell what you really believe, specifically what you really believe about God. Also, don't forget where we started from. This story begins with Abram reaffirming his commitment to the Lord before these events transpire. This prepared him for what lies ahead. See, the act of reaffirming or recommitting to the Lord is what puts us in a place where we are ready for what is about to happen, come what may. So in our gatherings, we generally have something. We believe God has actually hardwired his church with these things, and we believe that Uh, the way that we reaffirm our faith as a church usually is by taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, We're abstaining from that for a season because of coronavirus until we can do it as safely and healthy as we can. Hopefully that'll be the next big announcement we have for you guys uh, and such. But what I want you to understand is even if we are not doing that, let's use our last song together and make that a way of recommitting, reaffirming our commitment to God. It doesn't matter if you're coming off success or you're coming off a failure or whatever. The fact is, being a re- remembering the promises of God and remembering how he's, what he's called you to is a way of keeping you on track in life. And so, as we sing these, so this last song, let it be a celebration of your commitment to the Lord because he is the God who leads us to victory. Last. Let's not forget why we do this. See, just as Melchizedek was a king and a priest who came out to meet Abram, so Jesus Christ is our great high priest, come down from heaven to befriend sinners. So whether we have success or failure in life, good times or bad, we have one who pleads our case before God the Father and offered up himself so that we might become the people of God. And to that I say, glory to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Bow your heads, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. God, we worship you and praise you.
For you have called us out of sin, and you walk with us, whether it is in success or in, or in failure. Your word remains true. Your promises are true. God, even now as we sing this song, let it be a confession of our faith in you. Let us trust in you to be our hope no matter what happens this week. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our King and great High Priest. Amen.